Welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. No matter who you are, communicating to make sure your needs are met is really important. However, speaking up for yourself is hard to do even when you know you should. It's a skill that we need pretty much every day of our lives to navigate this crazy world successfully. However, this is particularly difficult for people with autism because they are not effectively taught the skills to advocate for themselves. Today, we are going to talk with Sandra Williams about strategies that people can use to become better self-advocates. Sandra is an autistic person who is a published author, national speaker, and member of the Ohio Center for Autism and Low Incidence Advisory Board. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Sandra, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So in doing research for, for this interview, um, I, I, I was reading about how early on in life I had a limited ability to communicate, which resulted in self-injurious behavior instead of words to communicate. Uh, I know you had no way to tell anyone what you were thinking, feeling, or what your wants were. What was helpful to you in order to better learn to communicate? Um, For me, what helped me to better communicate was um, just time in my development where I was able to gain more insight to words and sounds and have more experience to that. Um, I do remember as a young child when I first heard people talking or using words, it didn't come out as a word sound that had any meaning to me, but I would have this glitter effect um, that would happen in the room. So sometimes I might even be looking at a person's mouth because it was like glitter would come out of the mouth instead of word sounds that made any sense. Um, But my first sound that made any sense to me, believe it or not, was my mother opening up a bottle of soda and I heard the fizz. And that happened to be one of my favorite first drinks, and even to the day, it's my go-to for self-comfort and soothing is uh, soda. But I think, too, the other thing that really helped me a lot is learning how to access things by myself when I couldn't communicate it. So like some families will say, show me. Um, my family didn't do that as much, but I learned how to navigate pushing a chair to get what I wanted to get. So I didn't learn to communicate and ask for the things I wanted in the beginning. Uh, the other thing that really helped was people being patient and comforting towards me, you know, like at school. Uh, but they weren't always that way. So the ones that were calm and 
their energy was like balanced with me, the more I was able to stay calm in my own space to try harder to communicate to them. So that was a big thing for me. Distractions uh, were really, really a challenge for me because anything could set the distraction, derail that communication uh, pathway, if you will. Now, I've had the pleasure of hearing you uh, a couple of times do public speaking events. And and the first time I remember you talking about um, scripting with mental health professionals, and as a result, you didn't get the support you needed during those appointments. So can you explain what scripting is to those that may not know, um, why you were scripting, and suggestions you may have for for those with autism when communicating with mental health professionals so they can get their needs met? Sure. Um, scripting to me is like the borrowing of words from mixed areas that are used in odd ways to convey one's needs or um, ideas. So I would borrow these words from magazines, books, TVs, other people. Um, I didn't always have the full understanding or comprehension of what they all meant. But I just borrowed those words. They also were used as filler words. So if you asked me a question and I didn't know what the answer would be, I might throw out a script of borrowed words because I knew I was supposed to respond, but I didn't know how to respond. So I would use the borrowed words instead. Uh, the other part of it was for some verbal scripts to come forward that were not my actual thoughts. So sometimes things would come out of my mouth, but it wasn't what I was thinking to say. It was totally the opposite or very different mm-hmm. from. So that's a different type of scripting. But there also was the issue that I had was not just the scripting, but the wrong word choices would come out. Like um, if I wanted to say uh, light bulb, it might be blight bulb or blight bulb. It would, the words would get like reversed, almost dyslexic, if you will, when mm-hmm. they tried to express them. And that was very frustrating for me. The other parts were that I, when I did start to understand what they were asking, I was confused why they were asking. Like they would ask me at times in the mental health field, were you hearing voices? And I thought, well, yes, I hear voices. I hear people all the time talking. And, you know, so I didn't know how to convey that. I would just say yes. And then they would also ask me at times, like, are they in your head or are they out in the world? And I thought, well, the ones in my head are my thoughts, what I'm thinking. And the one out in the world is everybody else speaking. So I would say, yes, they're in my head and yes, they're in the world. And that caused a miscommunication to the mental health field that they honestly thought I was schizophrenic. Mm. And it wasn't. It was just the questions they were asking me, I didn't know how to answer them. And so I borrowed the words that I thought best fit, and it got me the wrong diagnosis or the wrong treatments instead of getting the correct treatments. And that was really frustrating, and it took years for me to be able to turn that all around. Um, one of the things I would suggest for people to help them assist with more preparedness, um, to be more prepared with the communication and those different ideas. So, for example, write out uh, what you want to say in the meeting. Write out your thoughts more clearly if you're able to write or type so that your communication isn't placed on a back and forth right away. It can be one-sided, but you at least have that template to go with when you go to the uh, person that you're going to be seeing so that you have a thing to look back at to be able to bring up your words if you get anxious or things start to shut down on you. So if those mental health professionals were more specific with it, with their and more direct with their questions, do you think that would have been helpful to you? Yes, I think that if they would have even began to understand and see 
the autism for was instead of just always trying to find some kind of mental health issue to treat that was never correct. Um, I'm not sure if I'm sharing that right, but for many years, was, they weren't really looking at the autism, but when we look at the mental health records now, everything showed autism all the way through there. I mean, the poverty of speech, no eye contact, odd body postureisms, all of these things that were classic to the way I presented myself and still did. If I was schizophrenic, as they had tried to say in, in the past, I would still be schizophrenic, and I would still be schizophrenic whether, because I haven't been on any medication, I would still show evidence to everybody around me that I was schizophrenic, mm-hmm. and I'm not. It was um, the way that they asked the questions made it complex for me to know how to answer them. Now, part of communication is certainly knowing what words mean. I know you've talked about um, learning vocabulary that service providers would use with you is a, is a challenge. What were some things uh-huh. that you uh, did to kind of help improve with this? Um, somebody taught me the script to ask for clarity. I didn't know what clarity was, so they had to explain that to me. But I learned that script. So if they um, said words in a um, meeting or anywhere that I would happen and didn't understand, I would ask them to clarify what that word meant. Then I would take little notes and put it down on like a um, little index card, and I would practice what those words and those phrases meant so that I would have better understanding of the overall words. So basically, it's just like taking a vocabulary test and learning those vocabularies and their meanings and then just pushing yourself repetitively over them until they're in there ingrained so that you know what they meant. Mm-hmm. The only problem I had was that some agencies, for example, the word punishment, discipline, and consequence all kind of mean the same thing. So, but in each agency, they might use uh, consequence, that word, and it might mean different things for different agencies. And so then I had to learn, not only did I have to learn the meaning of what consequence meant, but what it meant to that agency compared to what it meant to this agency, mm-hmm. because they used them differently, even though you used the same kind of wording. Right. So that was very complex and confusing. And then if someone doesn't know the vocabulary, not not to be afraid to ask to, to clarify. Yeah, the three rules I have for myself is seek clarity and compare what the meaning of the word is to um, a similar word or the word that I'm confused with and also contrast how are they different, how are they alike and how are they different if it's a, word used, a similar word used in two different agencies that have different meanings. That's my rule is clarity, compare, and contrast. Now, sensor, sensory overload can certainly affect communication for many people with, with autism. Um, how does sensory o- overload affect you and your ability to communicate with others? Well, the more anxious I am, the more choppy I've spilled and my words will come out. I also know that um, it'll affect my pitch, inflection, and speed and how the words come out. If I'm really anxious and I'm able to get words to flow, they might come out real fast. I might stumble over my words um, quite a bit. I might use the um word a lot in there as a filler to get my thoughts rolling. But it also increases the chance and the challenges of the word retrieval. So I'll know what I want to say, but the word retrieval becomes more of a challenge and more of a barrier. And then, for, you know, like, um, if the overload is very, very strong, it can even shut down my ability to speak completely to where I actually use a uh, type-to-speak device to help me out on those times, especially like if I'm in crisis or under a major duress or the questions are sudden 
I, I might not have that ability to process fast enough and then it just overloads and then I end up shutting down and avoiding. Uh, the last thing that I would suggest for you know, things that have helped me is that I've learned to decode my own self and learned what helps soothe me and what causes me to cringe. And I've learned to use those tools more effectively to help me navigate around various settings within my community. So I've had to learn what tools work for me and what tools don't. You'll get a lot of suggestions from a lot of people, but you have to decode that for yourself because each of us are different. Right. A lot of trial and error. Yes. Now... Now, you're an amazing self-advocate and have done a, a lot of public speaking. How does this? How does sensory overload affect you in those situations? Um, I'm learning to navigate it much, much better than I have in the very beginning of my career of uh, speaking, public speaking, um, mainly because I've learned what tools work for me. I'm learning more and more each day about how my autism presents and affects me or gifts me. But some of the strategies that I've learned is, you know, using my sound cancellation device, helps me to minimize one sensory input so that when I'm in front of the crowd or the crowd is getting ready to, you know, calm down before I'm to start presenting, you know, if I'm in the room, it gets very overwhelming and all the, you know, the people speaking is like a buzz in my head that doesn't go away for a while. And the sound cancellation system does help me manage that. I've also learned to bring me a, a diet poop or have a speaking venue have one on my on the podium for when I'm going to present. Uh, it's kind of funny because I've tuned so much into autism and, and myself and learning what other tools other individuals need that I tease and joke that I've created my own behavior plan. So mm-hmm. when I'm out there speaking, if I start to get anxious, I have the Diet Coke that I can reach to, and I know that's a comfort food for me, so it will give me a few seconds to be able to know that safety that is there on the podium for me. Um, some of the other things that I've learned to do is, in the past, I don't do it as much anymore as I used to uh, have my figurines, uh, like I used to like the, um, uh, the Smurfs and the Muppets. Uh-huh. And I would line up the Smurfs all in line in front of me in the podium so that if I got overwhelmed, I would just stand them all lined up and that would bring comfort to me and it helped regulate my emotions and my feelings. So I used those. I also learned how to dress, uh, dressing warm so not to be too cold while speaking because if I'm cold, then everything becomes more discomforting and, and choppy and I'm just trying to rest to get through it so I can get back to something that's warm. So I'd rather be too hot than too cold. Some of the other things that I do is when I'm speaking, I may rock my body or sway while I'm standing. Mm-hmm. That helps me regulate using the podium in a blocker from everybody else's view. So if I need to flap or whatever behind because I'm short, I can do that and it's not as noticed by other people. And then there's a, another technique I use is that prior to speaking, if I have the opportunity to, um, I will pace a hallway back and forth and, and, you know, before coming into the actual venue to present. And that helps me regulate. It's just a pass, and I rub my right hand against the right wall and just keep doing that up and down the hallway a few uh, laps. And that helps me recenter. And then the other thing that I do is that I practice and prepare for my speaking events. So for days, to assure good timing, I'm multi, multitasking and speaking. I read and take t- um, time to match up the timing with all my slides to make sure that I'm not going over and I'm not doing it too quickly. So I kind of monitor and watch that over and over. Mm. And for autistic people that might be listening to this, this interview, what suggestions do you have for them to better advocate for themselves 
and, and others, whether it's in public speaking um, engagements or just in general? The first thing I always teach people is uh, learn how to decode your own body signals. That means figure out how you, what makes you tick. So learning how your body signals work within you and, uh, you know, and how your disability affects you or gifts you. So you really have to understand those things because I see a lot of people want to speak a reason, but they don't understand how their own autism manifests within themselves yet. So it's kind of hard to be a good advocate when you haven't figured your own self out yet. So the other part of that is I always teach them, read a lot of materials from other um, advocates who have wrote books and learn the vocabulary around your disability so that when people ask you, you know, questions, you know how to answer them. In my years of speaking and presenting, I'm just alarmed at how many adults come into my presence during a speaking presentation and will ask me afterwards. They'll say that I've been diagnosed with autism and you talk a lot about this sensory something. What is that? Mm-hmm. And they don't even know that their body is plagued with all this sensory stuff that they're either avoiding or craving and seeking. So that's why I tell them, learn how to decode what makes your body tick, what makes, you know, and the more vocabulary you have, the more you understand how your body moves and, and navigates to the world that you live in. The other thing is, learn what your human and ethical rights are. Doesn't mean you go around every time somebody makes a slight little violation that you throw those laws and those rules at somebody, but just be savvy enough to be aware of what your rights and rules are for the areas of human and ethical rights. And also, the thing that I teach a lot of my students that I work with is take ownership of your disability and your strengths. Um, there's a lot of kiddos that I work with in my groups who might yell and shout, and another student in the room that's also autistic to, to be quiet, and they don't do it so politely. They may actually even tell them to shut up. And I said, wait. And I talk, and I tell the kiddo, and I said, wait, are you the one having problems with it being too loud? And they say yes, and I said, then what do you need to do? It's not his job to shut up. It's your job to figure it out because when you get a job, you can't tell your boss and coworkers to shut up. You have to figure out how to navigate that situation and take ownership of it. So then they say, oh, well, I can get the sound system over the years. I've been perfect example of self-advocating for yourself. So then they'll put them on. That just teach them, teaches them to take ownership. A lot of things I also see in the, the population that I've been working with is that many of our kiddos, uh, they haven't been taught to take ownership, so they blame everything on everybody else around them instead of taking that ownership and realizing what part of this am I playing in or not playing in that's making it not come out um, so successful for me right now. And so that was the other area that I go into. I also uh, teach them to practice in meetings to be your own voice and in the settings. Like, you know, usually mom and dad or a family member comes into those meetings. But when it's um, time for you, sorry, um, when it's time for you to have a voice, then you need to ask mom, mom, let me try to speak today. And if I need help, I'll ask your help, but you just go for support and let me try to get to my advocating for myself. And if that's really hard and intimidating for the individual, I teach them how to put it on PowerPoint. Put what you need to, to say and what you need for yourself. Place it in a PowerPoint so you have a visual template that you can give to the team and show to the team and be able to present it. And then you can show it with confidence because you don't have to work, figure out what are the words. What do I need to come up with? What do I need to say? Because you've already created it. It's there as a visual template for you. Hmm. Now, That's it, a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, if someone's listening uh, 
to, to this interview today and, and realizing how great great you are and how much great advice you give and they're interested in um, booking you for a speaking engagement, how would they go about doing that? Uh, yes, you would um, contact Denise Caruso. Uh, she is my speaking organizer and the email is D-M-S-C-A-R-U-S-O at yahoo.com or you can contact me at hfa 2 at yahoo.com and or you can Facebook friend me. And it said, I'd love to speak and travel. We'd love to be booked up for 2019. Now, in, in 2013, you received the Courage Award from Governor Kasich for your outstanding work mentoring teens and adults with autism and overcoming your own ob- adversities. Can you talk about not only teaching teens and adults uh, with autism, but what you learned from them in the process? That's the thing is that it's the most rewarding is being able to um, be a mentor and or an advocate for the individuals that I come across that want support and services because I love to see when they finally are making ways and moving forward in their lives in a positive way instead of feeling like there was no future and no hope. So one of the things that I find that I've learned the most from them is how powerfully gifted so many of them are in their own right. Yes. And that doesn't mean high intelligence. I mean gifted in their own right. Some of them don't the gifts that they have is just being being able to draw people in like a magnet into their world. They might not be speaking or have great talents and gifts that they're showing you right now, but they have this wonderful smile that just pulls people in, you know, and that that is a gift in itself because not every person can do that. I also uh, learned how in-depth they are and how greatly misunderstood they are at the same time. Um, the other part is that observing and serving also allows me to be current on the needs of those teens and adults as they tra- transition into their adult life. And I feel because of all of these things, it broadens my experience to become a strong voice and advocate for them and their families. An example of this is that um, every year I work through some different kinds of curriculum that I have developed myself, and I begin to teach kids from age 10 to 12, somewhere in that range of age, all the way up to 23 years of age in the school settings that I work in. And we learn about what autism is and isn't. We learn it from our own perspective, what we feel is different, how it gifts or, you know, makes us different. We also learn about how does our body react if we're overloaded? Do we go into fight, flight, or freeze? Or do we have a combination of those three? And then we go into a stage where we're at right now, but we're going to build a collage of um, everything that we feel reflects who we are as a person. And, you know, some of these kids are non-speaker, very low-verbal. Many of them have, um, you know, some lower IQ issues um, that they're challenged with as well. But the thing I love about it is that I pre-cut out magazines with lots of words, lots of pictures, but they have hundreds and hundreds of images that they can choose through this big, large bin. And some of these kiddos just amaze me at what they pull out what they choose. Like one young girl is so very quiet, very shy, very introverted. And the very first word that she pulled out of that bin for herself was introverted. She was very aware that she's introverted. Nobody talked to her about that. Nobody's explained all of that to her. But it gives me a clue of how to better support her, knowing that she also is aware that she's introverted. And I think those are powerful things that they teach me and I teach them back. It's a mutual give and take. Absolutely. Well, Sandra, I, I really appreciate so much your time. It was an honor to speak with you. Thank, 
thank you very much for uh, talking today. Thank you so much for inviting me to your radio podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed listening to Sandra speak half as much as I enjoyed interviewing her, then I think this episode was well worth your time. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach saves people with autism from feeling alone and being isolated? So often, teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety and as a result don't have success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help those with autism by working on meaningful, individualized goals in the setting in which they will be used so their anxiety is greatly reduced and as a result, they can become more independent and successful. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, it's very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On next week's episode, we will talk with Beth Thompson about developing successful internships for people with autism. Talk to you then.